I want to thank you for listening to the Pastor Mac podcast. Please enjoy today's message as we explore further into the book of 1 Peter. Recorded here up. We are going to be in 1 Peter and we're going to be going back into chapter 3. And the hope is to get to the end of chapter 3, but if I get excited enough at the end, Lord willing, we can go ahead and kick a few verses of chapter 4. It's really just going to depend on how this goes today. So we're going to go in chapter 3, and and, and just before we really get into the Scripture, I, I do want to say I was doing some reading on 1 Peter this past week, and there are two, there's two main elements in 1 Peter, and, I, and, and we need to stress one over the other. Um, one of the, 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 the ideas that's in 1 Peter and the thoughts in 1 Peter is the glory of God and how great God is and the majesty and the holiness of God. And then the other element of 1 Peter is the fact that he wants us to be holy, he wants us to be faithful, and there is a very heavy focus on suffering in the book of 1 Peter being the people that he's writing to and what they're going through. But while we focus on the suffering a lot in the Scripture because it's there in the words of Peter, and while we focus on being holy, if we forget how great of a God that we serve, And if we forget who God is and his holiness and his righteousness, then everything else in the book doesn't really make any sense. Because there's nothing in this life that we will live for that would amount to God. So I was sitting there this week and I was thinking of the best analogy that I could come up with in thinking about how great God is, okay? And then taking how great God is and comparing that to our circumstances, because if you remember, I think it may have been last week. It might have been the week before. They sometimes run together. But last week, we talked about the fact that there are some horrible things that we can go through in this life. I believe it was last week. And we said that even the most horrible thing in this world we could imagine, going through that, heaven, God eternally with us, God eternally for us, God eternally changing us, Even the worst thing in this world we could imagine happening to us or someone that we love, it is so much greater there. It will never, ever even be equal. And so I was thinking, how would be a way to explain that? And this is, no analogy is perfect. No no comparison is perfect. But I got to thinking about war because when we pray we really are praying but prayer is is our radio to god uh we're in a war situation we are in a we're in a world where everything is against the church and we're in the we're only here for a, a temporary time so when we pray it's us radioing to god our commander about the resources that we need to fulfill the mission that we have in this world and, and i thought about what it would be like to go to war with a feather okay think about this for just a moment to go with a feather to fight a war. And then I thought about, you know, us having a feather and and then thinking about all the nuclear weapons that are in this world today. And of course, if you don't know, which I think most of us do know, there are enough nuclear weapons in this world right now to destroy every living creature on this earth multiple times over. And so I'm thinking of the difference between fighting with a feather And then I think about fighting with every nuclear weapon there is. And then I think of the horrible things that we go through and the greatness of God. And I think of the comparison between the feather and all the nuclear weapons. And then I times that times infinity, which I can't even comprehend that. 
That's how much greater God is than your circumstances. That's how much greater God is than your worst day that, that could ever be imagined. So when we hear this promise, that, and like in Romans 8, that when we stand before God and, 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 and when we look back on this world and the Bible tells us this world will dim in comparison, it's not like, God, thank you that this is a little bit better than I, what I went through there. There is not going to be any way that we can humanly understand the difference between the two because when we get to heaven, what we went through here is not going to matter anymore. When we get to heaven and we see the glory of God and the greatness of God and the majesty of God, what we went through in this life is not going to matter. How great is the gap between this world and the one that is to come? And the gospel many times that we preach is a gospel where we don't want people to go to hell. We want them to go to heaven, which is a good message. But what we really want people to do is to stop loving self and start loving God. And when you love God, the benefit of loving God is that you get to go to this place called heaven in eternity. You see, the goal of the Christian walk and the goal of the Christ-centered life is not that I do what I do so that I don't experience eternal judgment and eternal damnation, but as I do what I do because I love Jesus and I want to be with Jesus and I want to live eternally with Jesus. And guess what? God is so great and Christ is so great that they have prepared a place for me that I can live there eternally. When I was growing up, Christmas Eve, we always went to my grandparents' house. I loved my grandparents' house. But you know what I love more than my grandparents' house? My grandparents. I didn't go to see the house. I went where my family was, and I wanted to spend time with my family. And so I, my prayer, I guess, and thinking about this today, and as we come to the Scripture, I just don't want us to miss out on the fact that everything that we do... Everything that we live for, everything that we should focus on isn't about escaping hell, but instead it's about serving this God that loved us enough to send his son to die for us. And the Bible even tells us rarely will a man send somebody for somebody that is righteous, let alone other people. But this God who didn't have to do it sent his son to die for us. And we're going to see this morning in the scripture all of the sin of this world, all of the, the hatred in this world, all of the unforgiveness in this world, all of the evil in this world was put on his shoulders at the cross so that we could live with him forever. And guess what? He built us a beautiful house. And guess what? You're going to get a new body. And guess what? You're not going to have to worry about dying anymore, losing anybody you love anymore. Guess what? There is no can more cancer. Guess what? There is no more heartache. But more than any of that, that's not why we're there. We're there because we get to see Jesus and spend time with Jesus. And God in all of eternity is going to reveal himself to us. And God is so great that there will never be a day that we know everything there is to know about God. Amen. Now that I feel like I've already preached this sermon, let's go to 1 Peter. 
So 1 Peter, we just finished last week talking about how God's eyes, verse 12, are on the righteous, the righteous and His ears are open to their prayers. And we talked last week about the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And so what we were kind of wrapping up with last week was really encompassed in verse 13 where it says, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for doing Good, And we follow that through the fact that we are not to be troubled in verse 15, but we're to honor Christ as the Lord, as holy. We need to always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks us for the reason of the hope that is in you. And again, that makes it easier when you're not focused on heaven, but instead of focused on being with God and loving God, then you can tell them about your love for God and all the side benefits that come with your love and admiration and heart to seek after God. And it says, verse 16, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better, verse 17, to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And now we come into verse 18. Now, I want to say real quick, these are some short verses, but there's a lot of stuff in these next few verses. Um, when I was looking at this even earlier in the week, uh, I just kind of said out loud, these are a lot of spinning plates. Now, if you don't know what that is, I think most of you do, but I'll explain it for some of you that don't. On the old variety shows, they would always have somebody who was a plate spinner. And what they would have in there, they would have multiple sticks or posts or dolos or whatever you want to call them there. And they would spin a plate. And like, everybody's, oh, wow, they spin a plate. Then they would start spinning another plate. So they were spinning two plates. And the goal was to spin as many plates as possible. But the truth is, if you spin too many plates, what begins to happen? They begin to crash and they begin to fall and they begin to break. There are a lot of plates in the scripture this morning. And my prayer is honestly that I don't break any of the plates as we go through them. So I may end up, if I feel that I've missed some things, post some things on the church Facebook page to kind of add some more information to this message. But hopefully I won't have to do that. So verse 18. Thinking of all this, about being righteous, going through suffering, thinking about doing right and loving others. In verse 18 it says this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, verse 21, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to Him. So we're going to go right in the middle of this verse and we're going to work our way out. So we're going to begin looking at verse 20. Because he formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. So let's, let's kind of have a little bit of Bible trivia this morning. Uh, Noah, Old Testament, New Testament. 
Old Testament. Thank you for looking at me. Okay, uh, what book of the Old Testament? I'll give you a hint. It's in the beginning. Genesis. Thank you. Okay. Um, what, what were the people like during the time of Noah? Extremely sinful. Now, one sin can't condemn you to hell, okay? But we do see in Scripture this idea of sin and extreme sinfulness, okay? And, and so at this particular time, in the days of Noah, there was extreme wickedness. Um, there was a lot of wickedness, vileness, anti-God sentiment, sexual sin, all these other things. And, and so what God does in the book of Noah is He says, I'm going to destroy everybody in the world except for Noah and his family. Now, why is that important? First off, that picture is not the beautiful picture of the ark and the giraffes and the elephants and everything else that we put in babies' nurseries. Okay? The truth of the scripture when it comes to Noah was that God looked at the entire world and the thousands upon thousands and the millions upon millions of people that were in it at the time. And God said, this whole world is so sinful. This whole world is so despicable in my sight. I'm going to destroy it all and start over. Okay, do you get that? That's how much God hates sin. That he is willing in that moment to destroy all but Noah. Now, on top of that, during this particular time, you not only have Noah and the other people, but you also have some other demonic things that are happening during this particular time. Let's go here to 1 Peter verses 19 and 20. So he says here, in which he went... And proclaim to the spirits in prison. So we're, we're thinking of the cross. We're thinking of Jesus going to the cross. And it says there in verse 19 that he went and he proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Well, what is he talking about when he talks about the spirits in prison? Well, apparently during this time, in the time of Noah, there were not only the people that were there, but there were evil spirits, evil fallen angels that were there during that particular time that helped basically cultivate this attitude or this, this sense of debauchery in this particular society. So what you saw there was just this mass wickedness that was going on. And whenever this happened, God ended up judging the people that were there. But the ones that were in sin, they destroyed. But those that were actually there, the spirits that were present in that time were put in some sort of an abyss or some sort of, 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 of holding place until it were time or until it was time for hell for them to be dropped in to that place. A scripture that we could read in Luke 8 is this where Jesus is dealing with the man that was tormented by the different demons. And he said, what is your name in verse 30 of Luke 8? And they say legion for many demons had entered him and they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss or to that place to where these evil spirits were held. Now, I don't know that we could find a geographic location for that. 
God has prepared this particular place for them so that in that day they will be judged along with Satan for their evil ways. But apparently, looking back to Noah, these people existed. Or these creatures or whatever you want to call them existed. Because this whole scripture, these are the plates. You've got to work with me. We're going to bring all the plates together. Okay? In this particular scripture, when Peter is speaking, he's speaking about not only people, but he's speaking to some sort of spiritual atmosphere, spiritual thing that we don't see, or spiritual players that we can't recognize. Because he's not just saying that Jesus, verse 18, died once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. But in verse 19, it says, he also went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Now, I don't know of any other way to explain this than to call it a victory lap. It's really what it is. Now, we have the scripture and we see the beginning, the middle, and the ending. And, and, but the demons don't know. When they saw Jesus on the cross, they really thought it was finished. When they saw Jesus going to the tomb, they really thought it was finished. They didn't know he was coming back. All right, And so what Jesus does, he basically there's a victory lap that happens in some spiritual realm that we cannot see. And as he proclaims to them, those that are in prison, he comes from the grave and basically says, told you, I've got victory over death. I've got victory over death. I, I am actually who I say I am. I have the power. I'm not able to be held down. And so we see in this scripture that Jesus died for us, that he, he, he traded the righteous for the unrighteous, um, that, he, that we are to put to death those things in the flesh, and we are to be alive to the Spirit. And in verse 19 he says, He went and he, he proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Now all of that, those plates I was just spinning, was just for that one verse. But guys, a hard verse just to have there in the middle of a scripture because you're thinking which ones is he talking about there's another one of those lines coming in the next section that we're going to be looking at next week i don't think i'll have to spend as many plates for that one okay but for this one looking at these and looking at some reference points he was speaking to the spirits in prison those, those spirits that were in the abyss that were not yet actually thrown into the fires of hell as we see in revelation they are the ones who basically are in bondage because of their wickedness and the conflict that they were or that they were impacting or thrusting on humanity. So now we leave that and we come to verse 20. Because they formerly did not obey. Again, who are we talking about? We're still talking about those spirits. Okay? Those spirits did not obey. And it says when God's patience waited. In the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared. So it is estimated that it took about 120 some odd years for Noah to build this ark. And the entire time that he was building the ark, he in essence was telling people about God's judgment on them. And the sin that was rampant in that society, along with the fact these demons were present stirring all of this up. No one, except for the eight people that went into the ark of Noah, were actually saved. None of the rest of them were saved because of the evilness of those. So again, going to the spirits that he proclaimed in prison, <clears throat> verse 20, they formally did not obey him, and God's patience ran out with the wickedness that was in the world. And so because of this wickedness, which man was accountable for, and also the spirits in that other realm that were impacting society and probably walking among these people, 
God said, I've had enough. And so he destroyed the people. And then he took those other, those demons that were present and put them in this area of the abyss to one day be for their final judgment. But this whole while, Noah is building this ark. And what we see here is an image of how great sin is, but how amazing God's salvation is. So now we switch gears a little bit going into verse 20 again. So he says, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. And then verse 21 says, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. So if you're just reading through the scripture quickly, <coughs> what does this sound like? It sounds like baptism does what? Saves you. That's what the verse sounds like. It makes it sound like baptism saves you. If you read it through quickly, you would see that. That's not really true if you take the time. Because look at what he's saying. You've got to continue his thought process. So you've got he suffered once for the sins, the righteous from the unrighteous, that he may, may bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Okay, that's one little section. Then we come into verse 19, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they, those spirits, did not obey. And then we got God's patience. He waited in the days of Noah. So he waited to see if others would come to repentance. He waited to see if others would be, uh, be found to be worthy to be put in the, the boat or set aside. But that did not happen. And it says all this happened while the ark, next part of that verse, was being prepared in which a few, that is eight people, were brought safely through the water. Okay, So those people were brought safely through the water. What did the water signify? Judgment. Okay? The water signified judgment. What did the ark signify? Safety, blessing, forgiveness, faithfulness, righteousness, holiness. Okay? So God set this, this boat of believers apart from the rest of the world. Those eight were saved and the rest of the world was destroyed. Narrow is the path that leads to life, but great is the path that leads to what? Destruction. And so we have this picture here. And so then he switches to baptism and it says it corresponds to this. It matches this. Now saves you. But listen to this. <coughs> it says not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Okay. Is the fact that you're dunked in water mean that you've got an appeal for a good conscience? No, it doesn't. See, that's why sometimes you got to keep it. It doesn't mean that. Basically, what's happening is there is salvation that has already occurred going back to Noah in the boat. And the water is the judgment that washes over everything except the boat. Okay? And the ones that are in the boat are saved. In baptism, you get in the water. And guess what? The water covers you over. You're completely immersed. And yes, it can remove dirt from the body. But guess what? The reason you were going under the water is not because anyone forced you to go under the water. The reason that you've gone under water is because you've made a decision to follow Christ, which corresponds to your faithfulness and good conscience. And as you are going in the water, you are representing God's judgment over everything except what's in you, which is the Spirit of God. Do you see it? Do you see how it's fleshed out there in the scripture? 
Because when I first read it, I thought, that's not true. When I read it quickly, like that can't be the case that baptism saves you. Because if that were the case, I, we'd have people forced under the water all the time. Not that one, because I'd, I'd kill myself in this baptistry back here. Now, for those of you that weren't here this Sunday, I told David to pray a little bit longer just so I could get in the water. And apparently he was praying with one eye open to see if I would fall in. <laughs> but if baptism saved, why would we stop anybody from being baptized? If baptism saves, why in the world aren't we? Why don't we have a tub hooked up to a tractor going through downtown and paying people to be baptized? Get under this water. This water will save you. The water doesn't save you. What do we say many times? Or what do preachers and whoever else baptize? Because I will tell you, I believe any believer can baptize anybody else. It doesn't have to be the preacher. It can be a father. It can be a mother. But when the Bible says to go out and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, it does not say preacher. If you are a believer, you can baptize somebody if they accept Christ. But what are we doing we're talking about going to death and being raised to what? New life. What does that water represent? Death and the coming up from the water, new life. Going down in the water with a conscience that corresponds to a desire to know God and coming up renewed. It is a symbol of something that God has already done in the heart. You see, when the waters came in the time of Noah, God had everything settled in the ark. God had everything settled in the ark. Noah and his family were settled in the ark. And when the floods came, the flood was evidence of what was happening in the ark. Because guess what? All those that were destroyed as the waters came in, they could not look out of the ark and see the amazing power of God. Just as in baptism, when we go under the waters and we come out and we see the beauty of God buried in his likeness and raised in the newness of life. Is it baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. But listen, though, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Which means when you go under the water, you go by choice. When you go under the water, you go because you have been changed. And it's an appeal to a good conscience saying, God, I love you. God, I trust you. God, you have told us to follow in your steps in the taking of the Lord's Supper and in baptism. So because I love you and a good conscience, I want to be like you. I'm going to be under this water and I'm going to come out of this water. Because guess what? This water doesn't do anything. But what you've done in me causes me to want to be faithful to you. And in a good conscience, I'm going to go underneath this water and I'm going to come out and through this, I'm going to proclaim, verse 21, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The one who has gone, verse 22, into heaven and is at the right hand of God. The one that is with angels and with authorities and with powers, having been subjected to them. And I love this part of chapter 4. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves, Peter says, with the same way of thinking. For whoever suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. You have been saved through faith and you are to live out that faith in every place that you go. But let me tell you, it's still not about just being saved from all that happens 
It's because we want to be right with God. And that's where we leave this morning. The fact that Christ suffered once for us. We were unrighteous. He was righteous. He did that so that he might bring us to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but he was made alive in the spirit. And he went and he did a victory dance to the spirits that did not obey. Those same spirits that were back beyond beyond the times of Noah, but especially back in the time of Noah. Those that continued to take those that were hard-hearted and make them harder and harder. And God destroyed that generation and saved this few. He destroyed those people. He took those demons and those other ones and he put them into bondage. And one day, all accounts will be settled We will be in heaven. God will continue to reign victoriously. Those demons in in, basically the purgatory now will be thrown into hell. The devil will be thrown into hell. And all time will cease and we will eternally be with God. For those that love him and are called by him. And we'll sit there with God. And we'll sit there with angels. And we'll sit there with authorities. And we'll sit there with the powers having been subjected to Christ. We're going to sit there with all our loved ones that have gone before that love Christ. We're going to sit there with every generation of believer that has followed Christ. We are going to sit there for eternity and complete joy because of Jesus. There'll be no more gnats in heaven. No more skeeters, mosquitoes. We'll know whether or not we say pecan or pecan in heaven. Tomato or tomato in heaven. No more back pain in heaven. Oh my goodness. Wow. Consistent temperature in heaven. If we, if we even have to worry about temperature. No more fighting. Oh my goodness. And could you imagine the spread of food that's going to be in heaven? I, don't, I, I heard somebody say, I don't know if we're going to fly in heaven, but maybe God's going to let us fly in heaven. Who knows? Maybe we can do those things we wish we could do here. But out of all that, we actually get to spend time with Jesus. That's what heaven is about. And because of that, everything else dims in comparison. Because of all that, everything else should begin to make sense. Jesus is enough. He's enough.